Tim, do you remember when we talked about the uh, Enneagram on our show? I did. We and did a, a show once a month for seven months with Gail from the Enneagram Institute. Yes, I do remember. And I remember because I think so highly of you, quote unquote, that I went out and paid my money and I got it done myself. And we came up with the same personality type. It was. I think we had one that was similar and then one that was different. No, but the the main one. Yes. Yeah. Was we we're both individualists. We we're yes. both number four. Yes, I believe. And which I, means we are our feelings. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> yes. It's a nice summary. I don't know. I wonder what real Enneagram people feel like when you know dopey people like us try to describe what it is. So that's why we're going to have Russ Hudson. He's the president of the Enneagram Institute, uh, which was formed in 1997 by the late Don Richard. Riso and uh, Russ Hudson, one of the most powerful and insightful tools really for understanding ourselves and others. And at its core, the Enneagram helps us to see ourselves at a deeper, more objective level and can be of invaluable assistance on our path to self-knowledge. The Enneagram Institute is currently engaged in presenting and sponsoring workshops and many unique aspects of the Enneagram and their relationships to to human nature. Russ Hudson is uh, one of the principal scholars and innovative thinkers in the Enneagram world today. He is also president of Enneagram and Personality Types, Inc. He's been uh, co-teaching the Enneagram professional training program since 1991 and is founding director and former vice president of the International Enneagram Association. In other words, he is Mr. Enneagram and he joins us on the show right now. Russ, wh- whereabouts are you? Like New York or New Jersey or something like that? York City right now, Drew. I'm, I'm right in Manhattan. Home sweet home. Home sweet home. Downtown Manhattan. Nice. Um, you, <laughs> yeah. I, the first thing I actually want to talk to you about before we get into all things Enneagram, because you're with us for a good chunk of time. I want Tell me about your band. My band? Oh my goodness, yeah. Well, I haven't been in one in a long time, but I was in several back in the day. I, you know, I was a big music guy, and um, I don't know that I would have ever got on stage talking to people about this stuff if I hadn't first been on stage with a nice trusty guitar in front of me. But uh, yeah, I played for many years. Uh, had uh, here in the city and around the you know the metro area here. Uh, had a lot of fun. Which particular band, but <laughs> there were a few of them. Yeah, what kind of music? Like uh, classic rock covers kind of stuff, or? Well, I, yeah, sure. I did some of that stuff to pay my way through university, but uh, I also was in some original bands uh, back in the early 80s, and it was kind of, you know, early 80s music. Uh, was here in New York when the new wave thing was breaking down in CBGBs, and so I knew a lot of those folks and was part of that scene. One band I was in, uh, the drummer, John Morelli, had uh, played with Cindy Lauper in her first group, Blue Angel, and before that he was in a punk band called The Tough Darts. Uh, which, you know, pe- aficionados of that era might remember. And uh, the bass player who was my roommate for a while was the bass player of the Buzzcocks, Steve Garvey. Oh, there you go. There's a name I recognize. Wow. <laughs> Tim, uh, across the board for me here, is uh, more of a music aficionado than even I am. So, uh, oh. it's But, I mean, CBGB, that was, that was the big one. That was the big place back then. Yeah. Russ, why do you do what you do? How did you get into it? What was the motivation? I mean, have you always been sort of a personality junkie? Well, I, I think I always had, you know, since I was pretty young, the impression that, um, how can I say this with the kindness that it actually comes out of, <laughs> just that people weren't noticing a lot of things. And I, I kind of grew up looking around at the adults and thinking, gee whiz, I think. I love these people, and it seems to me they're missing some important points. And not that I had all the answers, but I knew that there were mysteries about 
what human beings are and what makes us tick. Um, and I didn't, I, you know, I was kind of a, a science geek when I was a kid. And so I studied a lot of, you know, biology and chemistry and physics and was interested in astronomy and so forth. But, um, I got the music bug bad when, <laughs> when I hit adolescence and was just playing guitar, but that, that interest never exactly went away. And I think I just was trying to blow people's minds with music <laughs> for a while. And then I sort of realized there might be other more efficient ways to do it. Uh, but I was really trying to get people to notice more about what our human nature is like, what our consciousness is like. I really didn't in my wildest dreams think I'd end up doing something like this. I, it just it, like a lot of things in life, you just meet people and doors open and you go through them. Was there something in competition with the Enneagram as far as the future direction of your life was concerned? If you did, if you weren't Mr. Enneagram right now, what would you be? Oh, well, absolutely. Well, I was very devoted. I'd, I'd gone to school and I did well, and but I, I really still felt that my future was something to do with creative arts. And so I was studying film, I was studying acting, I, I was an active musician, and I really thought my life was going to go that way. Uh, but then, you know, I met Don Riso in 1988, and uh, it was we we clicked in in a kind of an amazing way. Sometimes you meet people and you just know they're gonna be in your life. Hmm. And it wasn't for a few years after we just had conversations every few months. But in 1991, he realized he needed someone to help him, and he asked me to come and work as his assistant, which I thought would be just kind of a part-time job while I continued to do the other stuff, but it sort of took over. Um, what I am interested in, in regards to personality typing, oh, hold on, let me just back this up. The Briar, Briar's Migs, that's good. That's the French one. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the Myers-Briggs stuff. You know, I was yeah. always encouraged to get into that, and it was very you know ooh, this is this is the good thing you know it, it was the big name thing out there but it, to me it was just so stale it was so whatever part of the brain that doesn't attach to the creative stuff left right which i don't know which one that is but it just seemed i don't know it seemed vanilla it just seemed boring basically well you know i i hear what you're saying i i learned myers-briggs i'd studied jung which comes from carl jung's work mm -hmm. carl jung didn't have all four uh he just worked with two kind of principles, extrovert, introvert, and thinking, feeling. Uh, Myers-Briggs added a couple more, but I, I thought it was interesting. But I think for me, the difference between the Myers-Briggs work and the Enneagram work was that there weren't a lot of surprises in the Myers-Briggs. It kind of told me stuff I more or less already knew about myself, just confirmed them. Mm -hmm. Whereas I felt the Enneagram was looking at a deeper slice of our human nature. It was looking at a deeper... Um, place where our motivation comes from in a sense and yeah maybe i prefer thinking over feeling but or feeling over thinking but the enneagram said why why do i yes do? yes exactly that was for me the big difference and so it was juicier it, it had more um i thought it had more ability to leverage real transformation in people if they wanted that Okay, so how would you ex is is that really what it is? The difference between something like Myers Briggs and the Enneagram is they're both personality typing tools, but mm -hmm. one steers you towards the wise more. One is more, does one is one more of a spiritual path? Well, I would say so. I don't think Myers Briggs is 
generally used uh, in any kind of spiritual context. I suppose it could be, but I'd, I've never heard anybody do that. Uh, but it's it's more saying how. It's how do we approach particular problems. The Enneagram tells us more how we organize our attention, hmm. what our primary motivations are, and why they're that way. You could have two people who are both, to use another metaphor, uh, type A individuals. They're go-getters. But they could be go-getters for very different reasons. And the Enneagram gets down to that kind of level of what's making us make the choices that we're making. I think also the Enneagram arose out of the context of spiritual traditions. It has plenty of uh, modern psychology, developmental psychology as part of how we work with it. But the roots of it go back to people who are trying to figure out uh, how to be more present and awake in their life and in their in their spirituality. We are on the line with Russ Hudson, and I have a book in my hand that I have that is fairly beat up. Oh, yeah, it, it quite lo- dog-eared. It looks like I've uh, had it for about 30 years. It's called The Wisdom of the Enneagram, The Complete Guide to Psychological and Spiritual Growth for the Nine Personality Types, <laughs> maybe the longest title of a book ever. Um uh, Don Richard Rizzo and Russ Hudson are the uh, best-selling co-authors of Personality Types as well. And uh, this book, I've gone through with friends, and man, it is just so interesting. And even when I hired, I had to hire a new assistant, Russ. I had my mm-hmm. uh, assistant with me for about 10 years, had to get a new one. I was really kind of nervous about that because I was saying goodbye to somebody and allowing someone else into my underwear drawer. You know what I mean? That's what an assistant is. <laughs> is all about. And um, I said, would you please do this? I want you to, and I'll pay for it. So I paid and she did the Enneagram test. And wow, did that ever help me just breathe into a new relationship with an assistant? It was that crucial. What I, what I want to know specifically is for our listeners who again are not clear. So let's start from the basics. Where does this come from? And also, I guess I need you to tie in at the end of this. How do you get people to relax about the woo woo aspect of all this? Because you know they mm-hmm. see they see the symbology and the you know the the stars and the multi points and the stars and some people mm-hmm. might think ooh is that occult is that a new age and you know I don't know whatever terms they want to throw out or spit out at this yeah, yeah. and people get wigged out about stuff they as far as I'm concerned they don't need to get wigged out about when it comes to the enneagram so let's start from the beginning it comes from this is the way I like to start these things I like to be wrong about something and then my guest corrects me okay. <laughs> Does it not start, apparently with seven deadly sins, but yeah. uh, kind of then morphed into the nine deadly sins. No, it was the nine, and then it turned into the seven. Oh, anyway, we're talking about Sounds stuff like, in the Bible, even. Yeah, it, I mean, really, what it, the origins of the idea behind the types uh, comes from uh, very early monastic Christianity. Uh, the Desert Fathers, and there were Desert Mothers, too that were in Egypt uh, during the era of the Roman Empire. And they were the first Christian monks and nuns in the world. But they were living out in the desert, and they are trying to spend their whole life in devotion and prayer and meditation. But they developed a psychology around what distracted them, what made them lose their focus, or in their language, what made them forget the presence of God. And they started to write down their observations about this, and the original writings that we have about this are from a guy named Evagrius, who wrote about this around the year 400. Uh, he uh, was 
writing down some of these observations, and the original list had eight, but they described a ninth that they didn't name, but they gave some details. And about 100 late years later, another uh, commentator from that tradition named the ninth. Evagrius and some of those ideas got thrown out for a while from official Christendom, which would have been, of course, Catholicism back then. Right. But uh, they were reinstated through uh, the work of St. Benedict, who brought these ideas before Pope Gregory the First, Pope Gregory the Great, and uh, showed that they were actually pretty beneficial. So they brought them back as the seven deadly sins. For some reason, they, they tossed two of them. We don't know why, but it would seem perhaps because there are seven sacraments, so they want to have some kind of symmetry between the sacraments and the, the sins. Who knows? But the, anyway, the idea comes from contemplative tradition in the Western tradition. There are elements that come from Jewish mysticism, from Kabbalah. But the modern version of it is just looking at some of these very core Western philosophical premises and looking at them in the light of modern psychology. So that most of the descriptions of the type are looking at the kind of orientation that these ancient folks were exploring and looking at them in the light of what we now know about, you know, childhood development and ego defenses and stuff like that. Ego defenses. What a great name for a punk band. Yes. Lego oh, Ego. Yeah. I love it. Ego defenses. Okay, I saw, I'm not sure if this was Wikipedia or somewhere, but I saw a little graph. And the way that the Enneagram is described, the nine types, seems to be different in one camp versus another camp. And mm-hmm. and so your, as far as the Enneagram Institute is concerned, the nine types are, are called the reformer, the helper, the achiever, the individualist, the investigator, the loyalist, the enthusiast, the challenger, and the peacemaker. Right. And in another one, I saw them saying that, that they're called the perfectionist, the giver, the performer, the romantic, the observer, the trooper, the epicure, the boss, and the mediator. Yeah. What are the difference? Where, where, why are there two different descriptions out there? Or maybe even well, more? Well, there are. I mean, everybody kind of wants to have their own name for things, but essentially uh, you're describing there the tradition or the names used by us at the Enneagram Institute and the other list you mentioned there comes from the narrative tradition, which was started by my friends and colleagues Helen Palmer and David Daniels. And they just had different names. If you were to actually A-B what we're talking about in terms of the descriptions or the characteristics of these nine points – You'd see there's tons of overlap. We agree about most of it. Every, Of course, within people working things, they emphasize different things, emphasize different methodologies, and or they highlight certain descriptive elements. And part of the fun of being in the field is you can talk with your colleagues and, and learn new stuff and work out uh, more subtle ways of of understanding what you've been looking at. So it's good to have people have some different views, I think. keeps the keeps it alive. You know, we're not... We're not looking to redo the Ten Commandments here. We're just looking at human nature and trying to learn about it. Well said. All right. Now, I don't want to waste your time by spending too much time on describing the nine types. Mm-hmm. But if anybody can do a shotgun, bada-bing, bada-boom, you know, description of these things, it's you. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so let's just bring our listeners again in on the conversation a little bit more. We're talking about the Enneagram. We're talking about a personality typing system. We're talking about something that is probably had more of an impact on my life than any other um, personality assessment-y kind of stuff. Oh, that was really well said, Drew. 
And so I want you, Russ, to just go th- like maybe let's let's time this. Tim, get your stopwatch out. Remember with your kids, oh, you say good. you'd say, "I want you to I want you to go get me a beer in the fridge. I'll time you." And then they run real quick and get it quick. <laughs> okay, I never did that. I should have done that. You should have done that. It worked for me oh, so much until man. my son looked at me and went, "Yeah, right. Get it yeah, yourself. Get it yourself, Dad. Yeah. Time yourself." Okay, here we go. How long am I going to give him for each one? Well, we'll just do uh, the whole thing. We're going to time it out. What's the oh, fastest okay. you've ever done this, Russ? Oh, I don't know. I've had to do it on. I've had to do it for various uh, TV shows and stuff. We have really short times, so yeah. Uh, I'll do my best. Okay, here we go. You ready, Tim? I'm ready. You tell us when. Go. The reformer. Okay, the reformer. Uh, there are people who the focus of life is about integrity, honesty, uh, doing the right thing following kind of a higher ethical calling if you will and so these we, that's part of a person's temperament we call those people we put them with point one the reformer at their best they're people who really do walk their talk they live a life of integrity they inspire others by their good example uh they really try to be fair and as objective as they can in their judgments when they're not doing as well they get kind of cranky irritable they feel like they and the rest of the world are not getting it right and they get into a lot of frustration and reactivity that things are just falling well below the standards of what they could be which doesn't make them too effective at communicating even when they have really good suggestions or ideas of what to do Hmm. wow that? that was really good okay number two the helper Helpers are people, or twos, as I like to say. This is the type that is focused on heart connection. These are people who are very naturally generous, very naturally focused on hearts meeting, on caring, on nurturing, on looking after people. Uh, Relationship is everything for these people, Uh, whether they're male or female. A lot of women will first suspect they're this one. They are, uh, when they're in, in their center and they're grounded, they are genuinely generous and helpful and do things for people. But they are able to do that because they also remember to take care of themselves and to address their own needs. This is the type that gets into trouble by forgetting their own needs or not exactly being honest about them and overgiving. Uh, kind of a, a codependent kind of pattern where I'm just doing too much for people, even to the point where I'm doing it whether they want it or not. Right. And I'm doing that. I'm sort of I'm taking care of you because I'm not taking care of me. Oh, so well said. So well said. Okay, number three, the achiever. The three is the achiever is these are folks who really believe that life is about accomplishment and about doing things, about using your talents and abilities well. And they really put their time and energy into cultivating their capacities and their abilities. So they tend to be people who are often successful in life when they're centered. All this great stuff they're doing is kind of an act of love. They, they're using their talents the best they can to inspire other human beings, to make possibilities for people, and to create really great things in this world, whether it's through creativity or business or science or whatever. Uh, you can find them in any kind of walk of life. When they're not doing so well, they, they tend to doubt themselves but continue to project a, an image of themselves that is more successful than they actually feel. So they get caught in in how they're being perceived by people instead of how they might actually be feeling inside. And over time, they can actually lose touch with how they're feeling inside if they do that for a long time. Okay, now since Tim the Tool and I are both uh, fours, individualists, and of course the fours, you know, the whole world kind of, it's about them. Uh, can you spend a little longer on this one, please? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, fours are people who are concerned with the eternal spiritual question, philosophical question, who am I really? Who am I in my depth? Who am I in my guts? And so from an early age, there are people trying to sort out who I am. What makes me me? What what defines me as an individual? Why we call it the individualist? And so when these when fours are in their flow, when they're doing well, when they're grounded and present and centered, they are able to go deep. They can hold any kind of emotional situation without flinching. They are the great lovers and expressors of beauty, and they are also the great inviters into intimacy and discovering what intimacy is on deeper and deeper levels. So that's a pretty uh, wonderful thing. When they're not doing so well, they get caught up in feeling different, unable to connect with people, feel misunderstood a lot. Uh, they can spiral in in kind of emotional patterns where they can't kind of get out of themselves. They're, they're trying so hard to figure out who they are and what they're about that it gets hard for them to relate to people in the world. It's like a little kind of a uh, whirlpool, an emotional whirlpool that they can get sucked into, and that's a sign that they're having some trouble. Okay, I do want to actually, I know it sounds so narcissistic, but I want to stay here just for a second. Okay. Um, I want to, at the risk of boring you, uh, I want to read something that I posted on the Facebook, on the, the show Facebook page recently. Okay. And I want you to tell me uh, at the end what parts of what I'm about to read to you are so for. Oh, my goodness, that's so for. You know, that kind of thing. Okay? <laughs> you ready? Okay. okay here we here. here we go. This is Russ Hudson on the line with us. He's the president of the Enneagram Institute. And this is what I wrote while I was sitting up at the cottage by myself, wallowing in self-pity. One year ago today, I spoke the last words I would speak as I began a three-month vow of silence. I told my daughter and my dog Tucker that I love them as they dropped me off at the airport here in Toronto. And then I flew to Europe to walk the Camino de Santiago. Many have asked what my first words were when I spoke again on Christmas morning, three months later. Many have asked what impact those months of silence and walking across Spain had on me. To be honest, a year later, I'm still trying to put words on my incredible experience. But to be brutally honest, life got worse, not better, upon my return. Every day I wanted to sit down and write, but I've discovered that it's hard to write in the dark. A friend of mine recently made the decision to share publicly about a problem they were facing and how stuck they felt. Being stuck is one thing, but sharing your stuckness is a depth of vulnerability I value most in others. So mm -hmm. so it's my That's turn. Very so, That's very four right there. It's very four, okay. Yes. So it's my turn. A year ago, I was hoping that my pilgrimage would bring me closer to the light. So far, 2017, though, has been the darkest year of my life. I'm not sharing this for sympathy. I'm really not. I don't have the energy to work at inauthentic authenticity, and playing the victim has finally gotten old. I'm yeah. sharing this with the hope that someone else down here might not feel as alone in the dark, especially those who are terrified of the dark because all they can hear is themselves. We all have a tendency to believe the lie that we are the only one, probably because darkness can get so loud that it drowns out the heartbeat of those beside you. Yep, that's very four too. It's, right? it's not until we bump into someone else down here that we realize our darkness is not aloneness, just merely the absence of light. Mm -hmm. So is there purpose in darkness? Maybe, probably. But that's not what I'm trying to say by writing this. I don't have words of advice or suggestions on how to find your light. I'm just letting you know 
that I'm down here with you. That's all Buen Camino. Yeah, that's 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 a huge thing of I think the gift of the four actually is being able to go into the dark with people and and say, look, it isn't all, you know, bunny rabbits and pastel and, and higher chakras firing off. You know, this is like, too. you know, I, I get very annoyed at that kind of, you know, I yes, there is light, but light makes no sense without darkness. Light, it, it was the first creative act in, in uh, the book of Genesis. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God divided the light from the darkness. Like light doesn't make any sense without the presence of darkness. So, again, people thinking they're being non-dualistic are actually being very dualistic. I also think that, you know, that wanting to hold hands with others who have been in a rough place is a great gift and, and a compassionate kind of love. That's part of what the four is about. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, I know what that's like. Tell me more. I'm not scared to hear your story. I'm enriched by you sharing that vulnerability with me, which is was your invitation. Good, good, good. Well, um, I just feel better about getting all that darkness off my chest on the air radio. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say one other thing, too. This, this might, at the risk of being a little woo-woo, yeah. is that the experience of intimacy is an experience of an exquisite blackness. It's dark. It's not light. Uh, intimacy, depth, the, the experience of depth, when you feel like you're going deeper, yeah. usually doesn't feel like light. Light feels like expansion, but going deeper often feels like darkness. Yeah. And so we learn that darkness doesn't necessarily mean bad. Really, really well mm-hmm. said. That yeah. makes me feel less of a freak. So thank you, Russ. I appreciate it. You still look like one. Thank but... you. Uh, speaking of freaks, Tim, do you have something you want to say about this four category before we move on? Um, you no. Know. Well, what did you well, want? No, no, I was going to ask some other questions. We can do that after he's okay. done the, right. the stuff. But okay. you know, as, as a teacher, though, I, I can definitely see the reformer and the individualist. I'm definitely sort of in there, especially being an arts you teacher. You can't take three categories. I said reformer and individualist. Remember, we oh, share right, the, the individualist, but not the other okay, one. Okay, Marion, sorry about that. The wiener. I was listening. I was thinking it was all about me. <laughs> Freak. Um, okay, the investigator. We're back on the time schedule. All right, here we go. And go. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're up to five, are we? Yes, okay. five, yeah. That's mine. Yes, yeah, five. This is my home base. Beautiful. Um, five is the is the orientation toward understanding stuff, uh, un- seeing things people haven't seen before, recognizing truth that's been hidden. And so that whole feeling of eureka, oh my gosh, I get it, aha, that kind of sensibility is what uh, point five is after. And so fives tend to be people who are trying to see past the appearances of things to get to deeper truth, deeper reality. And that's how we discover stuff. Uh, That's how a lot of scientific development occurs, but also how we come up with new kinds of creativity. You know, what will happen if I uh, chord this guitar solo, then play it backwards? It might sound cooler. You know, that kind of sensibility. Uh, So the, uh, the, that's when fives are balanced and centered and present, that that exploratory, clear-minded uh, quality of discovery is central. There's also a sense of loving solitude in the five, which is part when we're quiet within ourselves, we feel that solitude. Even if we're you know, in the front row of a Rolling Stones concert, you can still feel that kind of solitude. Whereas 
when we're in our reactivity and we're not so centered, we have an impulse to want to get away from people, to be on our own. Uh, people are just going to drain me. They're going to be a hassle. I got to I gotta be on my own so I can hear myself think. But without that groundedness, our thinking, we're, we're like forever trying to figure it out, but we're not getting any traction. So our mind is just very, very busy trying to, to remember a bunch of stuff. But we don't have that clarity and discovery that we have when we're more grounded and centered okay number six the loyalist and remember we're timing you okay (laughs) (laughs) number six is uh these are uh folks who are always wanting to pay attention what's going on what's around me what needs to happen what doesn't need to happen so they're very aware of their surroundings they're aware of their insides they're watchful they pay attention the whole uh conversation about being mindful this is very six and they're people who care about doing things with attention and dot the t's and cross the i's and get the details right and make sure life is working my my business my family my what it my band whatever i'm i'm making sure it keeps running and so that's where the idea of the loyalist i'm loyal to those things that keep them going keep my family going keep my band going whatever but this type is very prone to anxiety Hmm. and angst and worrying all the time because when we're not as focused and present we're trying to keep track of everything but we're we're doing it from the wrong basis so then you're feeling like you're going to forget stuff and boy i gotta handle this and what if i do that oh my god oh my god we get into this kind of nervous anxious uh, approach to life where we're either impulsively doing stuff to get out of the anxiety or we're getting very cautious and kind of timid about life and usually both in different times well said number seven the enthusiast number seven the enthusiast these are people who naturally have an affinity for freedom open-endedness creativity and happiness joy uh they when they're really centered they can find joy and fulfillment and inner freedom in the simplest of things just having a little oatmeal and coffee for breakfast there it's like all right there so they're people who feel a lot of gratitude and appreciation when they're in their balance when they're not so balanced they're chasing after what what they think will make them happy or fulfilled and they're running away from anything that they think might trap them or take away their freedom so it makes it it more hard for them to stick around till certain things develop enough which becomes a a kind of a trouble for them Hmm. all right number eight and we're almost done because there's only nine the challenger number eight the challenger oh number eight the challenger these are people are very gutsy instinctual they believe in being empowered strong rooted practical down-to-earth make it happen kind of people uh, they have a lot of natural vitality. They cut. They like to cut through BS. They're they're very forthright individuals, uh, and they are initiators. They they start businesses. They start companies. They make things happen, etc. Very gutsy individuals. When they're having trouble, they're maybe gutsy to a fault. They can be kind of loud and overbearing and bossy and and get in people's faces, which of course creates problems for them. Hmm. And then uh, finally, number nine, the peacemaker. Number nine, the peacemaker. These are the folks who care about being grounded and at ease and easygoing. You know? And when they're, they're grounded, they're both powerful individuals. They're creative. They can do all kinds of things. They're very effective in life, but they're also at ease inside. So I always like to think of, you know, for example, when I meet firefighters. So you actually have to go in and deal with burning buildings and stuff, but they keep that kind of – calm 
internal state that helps them deal with emergencies. So nine has that groundedness, could be very creative, could be very practical, but the, the important things, this internal state of being grounded, at peace, balanced, harmonious, etc. those are the values. And actually bringing those, reassuring people. The downside is when I'm not grounded in myself, I try to keep the peace by shutting people and situations out. Hmm. I don't want to hear it. It's that's too negative. That's too that's a downer. La 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 la. And so I and some people can actually think that's spirituality, just getting rid of the world. Um, but it it's really becomes a problem for nines because they feel less able to contend with the situations in their life or the needs of the people around them, and then they that gets them in trouble. All right, stop the clock, Tim. Just wanted to stop the clock, and then we're going to get we're going to let him know how he did. Okay, okay? maybe yep. that maybe yep. that we can yep. get a, give him a prize or something. Um, <laughs> but but when it comes to the peacemaker, an unhealthy aspect, or when a peacemaker slips into that unhealthy side of their gifting, are they not then extreme conflict avoiders? Yes, they are. That's me. Uh, the difference is, and all these things are can turn on a dime. Uh, the, the Enneagram is always having us look at paradoxes, and human beings were such a collection of paradoxes. As on the higher side of the nine, the healthier levels of the nine, I'm the best one for mediating conflicts, holding, getting people through things, working out my own internal conflicts. I'm brilliant at it. There's a certain place at which I lose my nerve. I, then I sort of retreat from conflicts. I feel like I don't have what it takes to handle them, and I figure any kind of conflicts will take away my peace, so I start to move away from difficulty in my life and end up kind of painting myself into a corner. You are a fantastic communicator. Mm -hmm. Russ Hudson on the line with us here, and of course he is Mr. Enneagram. He's got a cape and a mask and everything. And a sash. And a sash. <laughs> Mr. <Yes>. Enneagram. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are on the line with Russ Hudson. He is the president of the Enneagram Institute, EnneagramInstitute.com, EnneagramInstitute.com, Ennea, that's E-N-N-E-A, which is Latin for nine, gram, which is Latin for, what, hash? Wait. <laughs> uh, Institute.com. Russ? Did you want the times? Well, yeah. We, like, yeah, yeah. How well, did he do? Well, I would. I, I, I timed them individually. Oh, I thought goodness. that was fair to do. So okay. first, number one, one minute. Number two and three were both a minute five or okay. so. Number four, 120. Number five Nobody actually cares. was the longest one. Nobody cares. Just give us the total. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Can you work I'm on that? I'm a drama teacher, not a math. Work but on that. seven and eight were both under a minute at like 58, 40, 50, or sorry, 48 and 42 okay. seconds. Let me go back to what I said earlier. No, we don't care. No, it's um, important. Russ, are you still there? I hope you are. As far as I can tell. Yeah. Russ, tell me about Don. Uh, he passed away, was it four years ago now? He, he died in uh, 2012, so just over five years ago. Okay, all right. Boy, that's got, that yeah. must have been a really, really tough loss for you. It was. It was. Uh, we were best of friends and had this amazing journey together. Uh, you know, we started working. He had already been working uh, with the support of his partner, uh, for a number of years and wrote his first book, Personality Types. And then uh, he started trying to go out and teach. And he's a four. And he found it was really challenging to do it on his own. And so he asked me to join him at a certain point. Hmm. But I, I really was so touched and moved. Uh, when Don learned this material, he had been in the Jesuit seminary. He was going to be a, a Jesuit. But he was so taken by this. And, and he also kind of felt like he didn't really – he felt he wasn't cut out to be a priest. 
he felt this other work was a calling and he just devoted himself tirelessly to it for many, many years, studying personality, both, you know, researching in books and so forth. He used to study in the Harvard Library um, up in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was living in Cambridge, but he just devoted hour upon hour, week upon week, month, years. His first book took him, I think, something like 11 years to complete. So people, you know, think this kind of is some kind of quickie new age thing. It took him uh, almost a decade mm-hmm. to come together with the basic premises that we continue to build off of. So he was really a hero in my book, the way he, he stuck to his guns about it. And Russ, what was, what's your spiritual journey been? I mean, you know, he was on his way to become a Jesuit priest, I guess, Don. And what, what's your story though? Well, I, I was a little bit different. Um, I was, I, you know, grew up in, United States and was exposed to the the usual Judeo-Christian influences and uh, you know some of it made a lot of sense to me some less so and but I you know when I came of age it was the 1970s late 60s early 70s and all this stuff was coming out of you know from India and so forth the Beatles had been with the Maharishi and I'm sure you remember all that stuff mm-hmm. uh, and I was curious about meditation. I was curious about these other uh, perspectives. But uh, I ended up learning about uh, the Enneagram from its where the symbol actually came from, which is uh, from this teacher, Gurdjieff, who had died back in the 1940s. But I, I learned about it originally, as the people did in, in Egypt back in the day, as a tool for meditation and how to look at things and understand psychological patterns. Uh, it was only later when I uh, read Don Reese's book and met him that I got more interested in, in describing the individual types. But the original Enneagram had, uh, was more of a philosophical framework than it was a typology. It's, uh, it, it's, most people learn it now. They learn about the typology first, which, which is great. Uh, most people would like to know more about what makes them tick, I suspect. But uh, there, there's more to it than that. I also was going to Columbia University here in New York, and I got my degree. I started getting a degree in psychology, but I shifted over into linguistics and East Asian studies. So I was studying Eastern thought and philosophy, and just kind of helped me come into this question of what, how do we put together our view of the world, which is essentially what I'm still doing. So, Gurdjieff, I mean, I know a little bit about him in the fourth way, but how would you concisely package up Gurdjieff in the fourth way? Okay. Gurdjieff was a guy who appeared in Russia prior to the Russian Revolution and started teaching these uh, techniques for uh, developing presence, mindfulness, things that are very common conversation nowadays. And he talked about the importance of integrating our body intelligence, our emotional intelligence, and our cognitive intelligence, that when we were present or awake or mindful, however you want to language it, that those three intelligence would come together in a line and we were capable of living a lot more useful, (laughs) love-filled, amazing life. So he was really teaching a system to help people wake up. And he was probably the first person in the 20th century to start talking about this idea of people being asleep to themselves, but that we could wake up. So he was uh, very influential. He, he, they did demonstrations of his work on uh, in 
on Broadway here in New York City back in the 1920s. A lot of famous people were interested in him, and he died in the 1940s. But he had at the center of all this, the symbol of this work of integrating the whole self was this symbol of the Enneagram. And so that it, it sort of went on, and people have studied it, and it's now known more as this application of, of personality types that kind of came along later. Wow. Okay. Every <clears throat> once in a while, I look across the board, and my... My uh, co-host, Tim, Friend. looks like he really wants to say something. Do you? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I teach, and one of the things I taught us in Teachers College was something called Gardner's Multiple Intelligences. Uh, I'm not sure yes. if you've ever heard of it. Yeah, so, I mean, they're very much related yeah. to this in a lot of ways. It's more learning styles than anything else. Um, but he started out with seven. I think he's up to. they're up to nine now. I was wondering, are we going to get to Decagram here as opposed to Enneagram? They found that as technology changes and people have new skills and new learning styles, Interesting. that alters. Do you see anything changing? Great more question. or less? Well, the tenth is sort of, in the view of the Enneagram, is, is the unified self. It's the, the person who's, who's put, put it together. But the nine is really generated by those three fundamental intelligences of, of, of kinesthetic, emotional, and cognitive intelligence in some kind of combination hmm. in people. And so it generates, it generates nine. But it's interesting, just from the point of view of modern psychology, that there was a landmark study done in the early 1960s at New York University by a team called Thomas and Chess, in which just by studying babies, they studied you know thousands of infants, these psychologists did this long-term study and they found nine categories of temperament in babies that their personalities developed from and that everybody is all nine but not equally not in equal proportion and that's exactly what we teach in the Enneagram. Okay. So it was fun that they quite independent of any Enneagram studies, just through empirical studies of babies, came to much the same conclusion. Our type is more our temperament. It's what the temperament that we lead with, and that leads to different ways that we cope with our emotions or problems or try to approach difficulties. It isn't our, I always say, our type is not our identity. Our, our identity is so much more interesting than that, but it is a pattern that we rely on a great deal, more than most people realize. We are chatting with Russ Hudson. He is the president of the Enneagram Institute. Again, the website is enneagraminstitute.com. That's E-N-N-E-A, enneagraminstitute.com. Russ, uh, you know, I first found out about the Enneagram through Richard Rohr, like I'm sure many people in the in the Jesus scene did. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Oh, good, good. So I'm glad that you like him. He seems like such a nice chap. Um, we love to get together and t we talk for hours. We just have some good Italian food, nice bottle of, of Italian red, and we just talk about all kinds of things. He's a great friend. Beautiful. Sounds like a Billy Joel song. Or, or that scene from uh, yeah. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Fava beans uh, and a nice Chianti. Right. I'm, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I, I'm going to stay with the Billy Joel of oh, okay. Not uh, the I wonder what his personality Silence was. Silence of the Lambs. Um, and then also uh, a guy I, I met through a friend of mine, so Kathy Lee Gifford, uh, he used to pastor her church and his name is Ian Cron he's out of Nashville now and he's been he started a podcast about this uh, Enneagram stuff and then there's the Enneagram Institute and then there's but there's others along the way as well I think Ian kind of came up under the tutelage of of someone else not you and I guess I don't know I don't I mean what's the question is the question which one's the best obviously you know it's I, I feel really connected with you guys because of how amazing of a communicator Gail has been with me yeah, well, 
I think all of the different schools or people emphasize different things. Some people are working more in corporate environments, for example, so they're using more that kind of language. Some people are working with explicitly Christian communities, and I've certainly done some of that, and Father Rohr does that, and my friend Cynthia Bourgeau does that. Um, So, you know, it's, it's really a study of human nature, and in the end, it's pointing to human experiences. That's what's so cool about it. You don't have to believe anything. You just have to look, and it's pointing to different experiences that you probably already had and helping you make more sense of them. Um, so th- it can be talked about in a lot of different contexts, and different teachers or schools emphasize different things. Um, I know my uh, I know my scriptures, and I know my... Uh, I know my Christianity very well, so I have a lot of fun talking about that with uh, with Father Rohr and and with others. Yeah. And to really, uh, and and I think that it's also on solid ground there too. As I said, the the typology part really comes from the early Christian tradition. It's not from some weird occult origin. I'm so glad you said that. It really, you know, I, I just so many people have that trigger. You know, ooh, it sounds like it looks like it. Ooh, it feels like no. Um, it's not. I mean, that's just the simple pushback. Look into it. You'll discover what it is. I actually asked Ian Cron to, I said to him, hey, if you were interviewing uh, Russ, what would you want to ask? And he asked these questions of you. What explains the current okay. fascination with personality is number one. Uh-huh. What explains it? I think just people feel isolated these days. Right. They're trying to, there's not a lot in our contemporary culture that mirrors the depth of people very well. So people are trying to find out some mirroring of themselves, of what they understand about themselves. But I think they're also wanting to go past just the personality and understand something about what in tradition we would call soul. Hmm. What, you know, something about my soul. How is my personality connected to my soul, if indeed it is? And do I have a soul? I mean, these are very fundamental human questions that have been around a long time. But I think in the modern world, it, it people feel kind of adrift about a lot of this stuff. Two really quick final questions for you, Russ. Number one, what is the quickest way for you to diffuse or to, to get people who are sort of wigged out about the woo-woo? What is the quickest way for you to just dissipate that fear? Huh. Well, it, I, it's sort of specific to people, but I, I just, by my own manner, by my own willingness to hear what where they're coming from, hmm. by my respect for where they're coming from, by my saying, well, you know, this is just something I found really helpful. You might be into it. You don't have to be. But if you're interested, I'd, be, I'd love to tell you about it. I think how I show up with people about things like this speaks a lot that I'm walking my talk about it. Yeah. And that always, no matter what we're talking about, you know, the same thing if somebody was trying to advocate for their church, for example, it's our manner that's going to communicate to people the benefits of that journey. Really, really well said. One of these days, uh, the last point basically is me just sucking up, telling you how thankful and appreciative I am of the work that you have done, um, the way you've written the, the impact that has had on my life has been insurmountable. It really is astounding that anything at this point in my life is getting through. <laughs> um, and I want to thank you for that, Russ. And, and I mean, one of these days, I would love, I, I noticed you were teaching at a retreat. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like this cliffside retreat in California. 
Um, oh, Esalen. Yeah, yeah. Esalen One, Institute, yeah. Oh, man, I would have loved to have gotten there this, I think it was maybe August or something like that, but... One of these days. I'm going back there in November. Are you really? Yeah, but no one wants to be hanging off a cliff in November. <laughs> well, it's California, so it's not cold. It's not like where we live. Okay. <laughs> you guys hanging off a cliff any time of the year is awkward. <laughs> no, I yeah. One of these days, I I just look forward to actually sitting at your feet and, and learning more, Russ. So thank you again, sincerely, from uh, from me to you. I I just appreciate what you do and how you do it. More importantly. Thank you so much, Drew. It's been a blast. I've really enjoyed talking with you, and, and, and thank you for inviting me to your show. It's a privilege. Hopefully we'll speak again. Thank you, Russ. Take care. Thank you. Russ Hudson, president of the Enneagram Institute.